Morning, Bethel Church. Wow, we're going to have to do it again. I don't like to do that, but I don't feel very welcomed. <laughs> Welcome, Bethel Church. That's, that's better. Oh, boy. Now we're going too far. All right. Um, hey, uh, we are getting close to Christmas, amazingly, like 22, 23 days from Christmas Eve, something like that. I didn't actually count. 22, yes. And uh, as you might know, we regularly have Christmas Eve services here. We have three of them at 4 o'clock, uh, 5.30, and 7. And what typically happens is the first one is plugged, plugged with people and plugged with kids. And while it's fun, it's sometimes a little too plugged. And uh, then this, you know, we might have 320, the first service. And then the second service, we might have like 220. And then the third service, we have like 120. And uh, we're kind of trying to balance it out a little bit this year uh, in terms of numbers, but also in terms of just the demographic of the group and who all is here. Very often we have tons and tons of kids, first service, and hardly any last service. So we're kind of enlisting your help this year. Uh, there's two things that we'd like you to do. First of all, uh, we'd love for you to go onto our website, BethelChurchAK.org, and then if you scroll about halfway down on the first page, you find this uh, graphic for Christmas Eve and that little blue box at the bottom. And if you click that box, it brings up this screen. And you can tell us which service you're coming to and how many you're intending to bring. And then we can kind of all watch this together and, and sort of try to balance it out as, as best we can. Uh, so we would like your help to try to balance it out numerically. And then if you've got kids, uh, we'd love to have them kind of peppered throughout the evening and I don't know how we'll do that, except for maybe you talk to each other just a little bit. What service are you going to? Which one are you going to? It'd, it'd be great if we had them kind of sprinkled throughout the whole service rather than 200 kids first service. That's a little tough to speak through. So um, anyways, that's what we hope to do, and we're asking for your help. So can you guys do that for us? Thumbs up? Direct your friends there? Whatever. Uh, that would be great. Uh, if you take out your Bibles, set them on your lap. And we're going to pray and go to the God of the Word before we go to His, his written Word and uh, ask for His help. So let's pray. Father, we're uh, excited uh, for this particular season uh, that we find ourselves in. Um, having had an occasion to uh, declare thanksgiving, but not just in general, but as Christians we get to direct our thanks to you, God Most High, who is the giver of all good gifts. And uh, what a sweet thing um, that the world just, or at least this country, stops for a little bit and says, go home and be with friends and family, um, eat and rest and, uh, and be thankful. So we're very happy for that. We're also uh, thankful and excited as we look forward to uh, the celebration of Christmas, the arrival uh, of our Lord and Savior Jesus in the most humble fashion uh, that he might be a savior for sinners like us. What a great season. I uh, pray, Lord, that it would be rich, uh, that we would draw near to you and to one another. Uh, God, that it would be a true time of celebration, for we have much to celebrate. Uh, we ask for your help now as we turn to your word. And we ask, God, that we would know you better and love you more and be more ardent followers of yours for what we read and understand today. Help us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series, Songs of the Saints. Uh, we've been doing this for about four weeks now. 
And uh, the first one that we started with, the first song we started with was the first one recorded uh, for us in Scripture, which was in Exodus 15, if you remember. It was Israel's song of praise for having been delivered out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. And when they saw what the mighty hand of God did, they stopped and they praised the Lord. They praised Him for what He had done, for who He was, and what He promised to do. And then we moved on to what we might call uh, a cover of, that, of Moses' song. This one occurred in, in Revelation 15. And here we see a song that is sung by the victorious saints as they sort of view, these are those who have come through a time of trouble and tribulation, and they view the coming judgment of God upon evil in the earth, and they rejoice as those who have been persecuted and who have gone through tribulation and, uh, and are excited to see the name of the Lord vindicated and true justice and goodness finally come to all the, all the earth. And uh, one of the things we learned in that particular song was that even though just, uh, judgment is a hard thing to see, if God does not judge evil, then he is not good. And so it must come at some, at some point in time. And the victorious saints sing about that arrival. And then we looked at the songs of Lamentations. A book with five chapters, five songs. Each chapter is its own song. And each song is arranged very carefully as an acrostic so that each stanza of the song follows a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it is really a, a beautifully, intricately arranged book of uh, lament, songs of lament, five of them. And it sort of carries on in this very systematic fashion until you get right to the end. And then the last song still has five, or still has the same number of stanzas, 22 stanzas, but no longer is the acrostic there. It almost falls apart at the end, kind of like a frayed rope, as we described it. As these people have gone through this terrible time of trouble and loss, as the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed, and they lament, it's, it's, there's a certain grief that is captured there so that it can't even follow the same order and symmetry as it was composed earlier in the book. And I, and I kind of made the point that I think that's intentional. And I think what the author is doing there, I think it's Jeremiah, and I think he's trying to almost mimic or mirror the experience of one who has suffered great loss or, or trouble, uh, where they have to still go through the cadence of life, day and night, work and play, meals and rest. Life continues on, but the order and symmetry is sort of frayed when they go through severe loss. But we saw that lament is something that is right for us to do, uh, that it is, in fact, even the other side of praise, and that it is meant to be the first step in a journey towards praise. And then last week, I wasn't here, and Pastor Mark preached for me, and I've only, I'm only halfway through his message, so I don't really know all that he said, but I do know that he focused on the journey aspect of lament. We're, we're meant to start there, but we're meant to get out of it, too, and move towards praise. And uh, I'll have to listen to the whole of the message to see whether I agree with him or not. So, um, And so anyways, we've been looking at the songs of the saints uh, throughout the scriptures to kind of see what they are and how they fit into our own lives. And today we're going to flip the script. And today we're going to look at what we might call the song of God. And uh, we're going to look at the occasion for his singing. And we're going to look at the object of his singing. That is what he is singing about. And so this morning's passage is found in Zephaniah 3. You got that one? <laughs> so here's my help for you. This is an unfamiliar book for many of us. So go to Matthew, hang a left, 
and go back about four minor prophets, and you'll find Zephaniah. Don't get caught in Zechariah, but Zephaniah. Several years ago, um, some family friends of mine uh, were having a wedding, and um, the people were seated, as you guys are, and sort of waiting for the wedding to unfold. The next thing was sort of the customary and uh, familiar bridal march, and so people were waiting for that to occur. And instead of the common bridal march, all of a sudden there was uh, a different tune, and a unique voice uh, began to sing. And it was a beautiful female voice, and people kind of weren't sure, where is it coming from? It's not on stage. We can't see this person. And in fact, what was going on is it was the bride who was up in the balcony of the church. And before the wedding began, she was singing a love song to her soon-to-be husband. It was a really tender and powerful moment, something I had never seen before. I'd never even heard of it before. But it was just really beautiful and very touching to see that tenderness and affection uh, that she offered even before uh, the beautiful ceremony. And what's fascinating is here in Zephaniah, we find something actually very similar. And in this case, we're sort of surprised to find God himself as the singer of a love song for his bride, which is the church, the redeemed of God. And it's just very beautiful. It's very touching. And one of the things that we get in this song is we get this wonderful reassurance of God's love. And that's kind of the main idea this morning as we start the sermon here, that the song of God here that we see at the end of this passage really reveals God's heart for his people. So let's kind of get our bearings with this unfamiliar book. We'll do a, kind of a quick run-up and then into our text here. Um, the context of the book, uh, as you uh, might guess here, it's, it's written during the reign of King Josiah. Did you guess that? It's told to us right in the first few verses. And uh, King Josiah, if you don't know a lot about him, he was the boy king. He, was the, he became king at age eight. How about that? Can you imagine your eight-year-old being king? Some eight-year-olds think they're king, right? Well, this eight-year-old was king. And 2 Chronicles 34 tells us that in the eighth year of his reign, so when he hits the point of 16 years old, at 16, he begins to seek the Lord. Well, that's remarkable because usually at 16, boys begin to seek girls, right? But this guy seeks the Lord. And he sets about with some reforms in Judah. And it may well be that Zephaniah's uh, written words here are a part of, or sort of a catalyst for bringing, those, bringing about those reforms. But what we find, in fact, is that it's, it's too little and too late for Judah. God's judgment is coming. And uh, that is what Zephaniah uh, announces. Uh, and so the book, uh, as, as we know, because it was written in the time of Josiah's reign, was between 640 and 610 B.C., uh, or about 30 to 40 years before the fall of Jerusalem, which occurs in 586. That's just a date you should know. As a follower of Christ, uh, Jerusalem fell in 586 to Babylon, so you should just know that. Um, and one of the things that we can see here is that Zephaniah and his contemporaries, in fact, one of the things they're referred to is as the 11th hour prophets. Isn't that a cool name? I think if you're looking for a band name, that might be a good one. 11th hour prophets. But it wasn't anything but cool. They were announcing the impending judgment of God and the fall of Jerusalem. 
the genre of the book is prophecy, as you might have guessed. Uh, and we have to do just a little bit of uh, homework here on prophecy because I think prophecy is often a sort of a confusing and intimidating genre of Scripture. At least it is for me. And so one of the things that I uh, heard years ago that was helpful to me was about how the nature of prophecy works. Uh, oftentimes what we find is that the prophet sort of announces events that are going to occur, but it just announces them matter-of-factly, sort of all at once. And it's difficult to discern what the sequence might be or when or how long or all of these kinds uh, of things. And one of the ways this was explained to me was, was kind of like uh, prophets communicate almost as, you know, talking about future events like a mountain range. So if we were to go outside in the church parking lot here on a clear sunny day and look at the mountain range, look to the south and see the Alaska range, we would see familiar peaks. We would see Mount Deborah and Hayes and Hess, and they kind of all look like they're equidistant from us. They're just, you know, right there, far away. What probably nobody here knows now, there's, now that I've said that, there's going to be one person that does know, but probably most people don't know what's the distance between this peak and the next. And, and that's kind of the way prophecy works. It's sort of told to us like a mountain range, but we don't always know the intervening period of time between one event and the next. And we definitely find that uh, here in Zephaniah. Um, so I think that's something that's helpful to understand uh, much of prophecy in the Bible contains immediate fulfillment and then subsequent uh, fulfillment, but it's, it's all given together. So I think the implication of this for us as readers is that uh, we need to be humble when it comes to prophecy, not scared. There's much to learn here about God and his nature, how he feels about his people, what he's doing in the world, but we should be humble about when and where and how long. And these kinds of things. These are things to kind of hold with an open hand and to be gracious uh, to one another uh, in this. Uh, the message of the book, it's a, it's warning. It's a, it's a message of warning. It's written primarily to Judah, again, because of their sin and idolatry and, and about the inevitable judgment of God uh, because of their disobedience. Uh, and so in that way, it has a similar tone or perspective to that of Jeremiah and uh, Habakkuk. How did Mark say it last week? Did he say Habakkuk or Habakkuk? He said both. All right, we're docking his pay for that. <laughs> uh, I've asked Lynn if she would come and read the passage for us. And as she's coming forward, what I, I want you to listen to, one of the great treasures of this book is that it sees beyond the immediate judgment that's coming. And it sees to the beautiful restoration that God promises. Zephaniah 3, 19, 9 to 17. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove, them from your, I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and the humble, the remnant of Israel, will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. 
The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. He will rejoice over you with singing. Thank you, Lynn. Isn't that an amazing ending to that passage there? He will rejoice over you with singing. I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said that one of the great difficulties to believe about the Christian faith is the incredible dignity that it gives to the human soul. And here we see, amazingly, God most high dignify mankind. We're used to him being the recipient of our songs and praise. But at the end of this passage, God is the singer and we're the object of his delight. And that can be difficult to believe at times. We'll get to that in a bit here. One of the primary themes of Zephaniah is the day of the Lord. This phrase appears throughout the book many, many times. I didn't bother to count. Let's just say a lot. Uh, it occurs twice. A truncated version of it occurs twice right here where it says on that day. We see it in verse 11 and in verse 16. And that phrase, the day of the Lord, is a very big theological concept. And uh, actually would take quite a lot to unpack all of it. So I'm just going to touch on it a little bit this morning so that we'll have a sense of it. But it refers to a time of Yahweh's unmistakable intervention into mankind's situation. Yahweh's unmistakable and powerful intervention. And prophets use the day of the Lord to refer to both warning and to hope. At times it's disaster and at other times it's salvation. And so you might say that the day of the Lord is kind of like the moment of truth. A day of reckoning. It is the time when one's relationship with the Lord comes into the reality of consequence, one way or another. Uh, and for some, it's going to be a day of dread. And for others, it's a day of rejoicing. And so this, one of the other natural questions that sort of comes up about the day of the Lord is a question of timing. When is it? When is the day of the Lord? Who, who can tell me when? And it's, it's interesting because at times the prophets use it to refer to sort of an immediate impending action or historic event that's going to happen, such as the judgment of the city of Jerusalem. And at other times it seems to refer to a final sort of far-reaching eschatological event, end times event, as, such as the return of the Lord and the setting all things to right. And so there's some flexibility in the ways that prophets use this term, day of the Lord. So, for example, sometimes the day of the Lord is near. If you look at Zephaniah chapter 1, uh, verse 7, it says, Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. And then even on into verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. And from that point on, we can see that this is referencing sort of an immediate judgment upon Jerusalem. But then sometimes the day of the Lord is far. I sound a little bit like Grover in that old Sesame Street, uh, Sesame Street sketch. Do you guys remember this one, the near-far sketch? Some of you? Okay. Well, that's what's in my mind. But in this case, the day of the Lord is far. On that day, if we look in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, on that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, 
Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Well, that's a future and yet to come day. That's far. So there is a nearness and a farness. There is a, a dread and a salvation. And so it's a pretty flexible and, and, and big concept term that is used throughout uh, the scripture, especially the prophets. But the day of the Lord refers to the direct intervention of God into the affairs of mankind. Um, so here's the thing that's interesting about Zephaniah. Is it describes and it refers to this day of the Lord. And it refers to it in all of its elasticity. It talks about this present judgment and it talks about this future hope. And what it does is it creates for God's people attention. In other words, when is it? When is this going to occur? How can it be good and bad? How will things change? How will this restoration come about? It creates a tension, and I'm going to come back to that as, as we go on. So let's run quickly through the book here. Chapters 1 and 2 really focus on the judgment of God. Again, this is the near case, the immediate, the judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem uh, at the hands of the Babylonians. And then chapter 3 moves on and begins to focus on the restoration uh, of God. And again, this is the far case or the future fulfillment. And I would just tell you that one of the beautiful contributions of the book of Zephaniah to the scriptures as a whole uh, is that it sketches for us some of the beautiful aspects of God's coming restoration. The restoration of Shalom and God's rule and reign and setting all things to right. We get some glimpses of it and those are always pleasant to see. In fact, we've gotten some glimpses of it even just recently when we celebrate Thanksgiving and we go home and we have a nice meal and we rest and we just enjoy one another in peace and harmony. These are glimpses of the shalom of God and Zephaniah gives us some glimpses as well here. And so that's what we're going to highlight. We're going to highlight sort of the, the treasure of this book, God's, uh, God's coming restoration and how it's, it's painted for us here. And so the first aspect that we see is that God will restore his rightful praise. Verse 9, then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. This doesn't tell us that all people will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, but it does tell us that the people who do come to the Lord will come from all places, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. And one of the great things that we're reminded of here is the original vocation of mankind. We were, all of us, made to be worshipers. That's our original vocation. That is our design. That is how God has engineered us. As I've told you many times, if you were to take a human being and reverse engineer them and try to figure out, what is this creature? What is it made for? What is it made to do? We would see that we are uniquely, among all of creation, made to voluntarily worship. In fact, I would go a step further to say, you cannot not worship. That's not even possible. You're like a light bulb that's always on. The only thing that changes is who or what is the object of your worship. We were meant to worship Yahweh. We were meant for Him. He made us for Himself. And so all of our life is, is, is supposed to be an act of worship. Our work, our play, our relationships, 
our creative endeavors, our song, even our lament. It's all meant to be an act of worship. And we see here that God will restore this right orientation to him. We saw it right at the beginning of Genesis. God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And this passage lets us know, so shall it be again. And then we see in verses 11 and 12, um, God will restore rightful relationship. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. We know from other passages in Scripture that in the great day of the Lord, when He sets all things to right, we will be in right relationship with one another, but primarily we'll be in right relationship with Him. No longer will we be haughty and prideful and pushing against and running away and going the other direction, but we will be rightly oriented to God Most High. And this is, I think, where the tension is sort of created or begins. It causes us to ask the question, well, how? Imagine you're the original hearers of this message. And God's telling you, I'm going to destroy everything. Your town, your temple, everything around you is going to be absolutely laid to waste. And that's coming. But over here, I want to tell you about this beautiful day of restoration and how pride and arrogance will all be gone and you'll be rightly related to me again. You'd be kind of like, hey, can, I, can you tell me about this missing link here? How do we get from this judgment that we deserve to this restoration that you promise? How is this, how is this achieved here? Where is the bridge here? We'll get to it. We're still working our way. But I think the tension has begun uh, to be created there. Then we see that God will restore rightful actions. And I think this is quite phenomenal. Listen to the text. They will do no wrong. Did you hear that? They will do no wrong. That's shocking. People do wrong all the time. You guys do wrong all the time. I know you. I get your phone calls and emails. I do wrong all the time. I don't tell you about it, but I do. That's kind of how we are. Sin has infiltrated this world. It has gotten into and on everything and disintegrated the shalom of God. But he says they will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. But I think it's shocking that there, there just won't be any instinct to do wrong. Think about how much of our lives are spent in trying to Get people to do the right thing. Let's start with your family unit. You have rules. This is dad's chair, right? These are dad's cookies. Don't mess with these things. We have rules at home because we know otherwise the kids will do whatever they want. And that won't be good. Then let's move to your place of business or where you work. There you have, well, they're not rules now, they're policies. This is how this works. This is how that works. Because without policies, once again, the people will do whatever they want and it will be a mess. Oh, let's look at your neighborhood. Maybe in your neighborhood you have covenants. You can't have 12 cars on your property. 
You can't finish your home with Tyvek or a blue tarp. Please don't do that. You have covenants about what you can and can't do because we all know, you look around Alaska, people will do what they want. Then you move past your neighborhood and, and you get to, let's say, the community as a whole. Well, now we have ordinances. You can't make noise after 10 o'clock. You can't do this on that street corner. You can't do this over here. Whatever. There are ordinances. And you move to a nation and you have laws. It's all instructions about how we're to behave. Because the nature of mankind is to misbehave and to do what we want. Because sin is here and upon us. But in this sketch of the day of the Lord that comes and the restoration of shalom, they will do no wrong. Nobody will do wrong. It's amazing. I recently took a personality test. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing at that, but I am. I took, it was actually over Thanksgiving. And one of the questions that, that kept coming up uh, actually, it was a statement, and you're supposed to either strongly affirm or, you know, or strongly deny or whatever. And the line that kept coming up was, I take active steps to anticipate and prepare for trouble or danger. And I thought, that is the strangest question. And I kind of laughed about it until I got thinking about it, and I thought, actually, I, I, I do that a lot. I spend a lot of time on that. I spend a lot of, a lot of time in sort of caution mode and watch and guard and protect. For example... Should I get the extended warranty on the new appliance? The answer is yes to that every time because they only make disposable appliances now, right? Have you experienced this yet? It's going to fail in three years. You better have the warranty. Or should I get the home systems insurance line to protect my boiler? The answer to that is an amen yes. Saved me eight grand this year. Should I fill the propane tank before Thanksgiving just in case? The answer was yes, and I did, so that was good. Should I put conventional or synthetic oil in my, my truck? Probably synthetic. It'll protect it more. Uh, should I have a firearm for self-defense? It's none of your business, but you, I might, so you better be wary. <laughs> you don't know. Sh should, I, should I leave my wood stove and my book and my cup of coffee on Black Friday? And go out early in the morning shopping with all the yahoos. No way. I will pay more money than the original price to avoid that incident. You know what I'm saying? Do I have anybody with me on that one? I'll pay more. I'll pay more. And so I kind of realized I, I, I do this a lot. And then actually a funny memory came to mind. It was about last Christmas and one of the gifts that I got my wife. Um, this was a... This was a special gift that I got for my wife. I got her a safety vest. Isn't that romantic, ladies? I want her to be safe when she walks in the wintertime. So I got her a safety vest. So um, I know where I landed on that personality chart there. I spend a lot of time in protective mode and guard mode and watching out for danger and trying to get in front of it. Some of that's my personality, some of that's maybe a shepherding gift in me, and some of that's just the fact that we live in a broken and flawed world, and we live with broken and flawed people, and I'm ashamed to say it, but things break, systems fail, and horrendously people do harm to one another, and we know that. That's the world we're living in. 
as Zephaniah says, we will eat and lie down and no one will make us afraid. No need for keys, locks, guns, or safety vests. No fear. All things will be secure under the hand of the Lord. All things will be set to right. I mean, it's a beautiful, compelling thought to think about. Isaiah paints a similar picture. He uses different languages. Language, And one of, the, one of the pictures that he uses is the time of when swords will be turned into plowshares. What a great image. The steel instrument once used to rip flesh will be turned into something that just tears the ground to cultivate it for productivity instead of destruction. And that's a sweet picture. The reuse of weapons to cultivate something wonderful. Something to look forward to. And God will restore his presence. Verse 14. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. The frustrated presence of God, that's my term, that's what I'll call it, is one of the great themes throughout the scripture. Again, we find right at the beginning of Genesis, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. But it's not long until sin enters the world and Adam and Eve wreck the shalom of God. And they're banished from the garden. God intervenes again and makes a covenant on his prerogative with Abraham. I'll make you a blessing and bless all people through you. And that also fails because mankind fail. And his descendants find themselves in Egypt, fleeing in a time of famine. And then they're enslaved and in bondage, as you know. And so God intervenes again and he sends Moses. And Moses helps to deliver uh, God's people. And he gives to them, brings to them the law so that they can know what God's expectations are. And he gives them instructions on the tabernacle so that they can know how a sinful people approaches a holy God. These were things they delighted in for a time. And then disobedience set out again. And so this, this, the narrative arc of the Bible is one of God constantly coming near and his people constantly pushing away. And so what we find is this sort of frustrated presence of God. And yet here we're assured he will be with his redeemed people. His presence will be with them. Now, I mentioned earlier that Zephaniah introduces um, sort of these themes of judgment and restoration right up against each other. And you can imagine, if you were the original hearers, the tension that would create in you. This restoration bit sounds great. I like all of that. No fears. With God, rightly oriented to him, Restoring worship from all peoples, that sounds good. But the first two chapters tell us judgment's coming. So how do we get from this rightful judgment that we deserve to this restoration that we don't? What occurs that we can get here? Well, Zephaniah doesn't answer it. Tim Keller has a great quote about this, and I want to read it to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but hang in there with me. He says this. One of the main questions constantly raised by the historical books of the Bible has to do with the nature of the covenant. Is the covenant conditional or unconditional? Will God say that it is conditional 
Because you broke the covenant, I will cut you off, curse you, and abandon you forever. Or will God say that it's unconditional? Though you have rejected me, I will never wholly abandon you, but will remain with you. This mystery is one of the main tensions that drive the dramatic action. Since his people have forsaken him, will he forsake them? There seems to be no easy answer uh, that will not compromise something we know about God. Will his holiness give way to his love so that he overlooks sin? Or will his love be overwhelmed by his holiness and justice so that the divine hammer falls? And then Jesus comes. And we see him crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we realize the answer. Is the covenant between God and his people conditional or unconditional? The answer is yes and yes. Jesus came and fulfilled the conditions so that God can love us unconditionally. Jesus is the answer to the mystery and the riddle and the tension that is created in Zephaniah. How do we get from the judgment we deserve to the restoration that we long for? It comes in Jesus. We're not suddenly going to decide not to, to, to just only do right. We're not going to just naturally decide to reorient ourselves to God. When it talks about the humble and the meek that he will leave among and those who trust in, the, in God, the, only re, the, the reference there is not that we earn our way to this restoration. It's that we fall on our knees and recognize that we need God's mercy, which has been poured out in Christ for us. His death for our sins, his resurrection for our life. And that is how we cross the bridge from judgment to restoration. The mystery is revealed in Jesus. But that's not the last bit. We're told that God will restore assurance of his love. That's how I would characterize these last verses we're going to cover. Verse 16, on that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And one of the things that I take away from this, and it might sound funny, and maybe it's only in my mind, but I hear that God is not a reluctant savior. It's not like, oh man, clean up on aisle six. Eric messed up again. What, what am I gonna do? I gotta, I gotta find a savior. I don't really wanna send Jesus. He is eager, eager to provide what I need, which is at the expense of his own son. Eager to give sacrificially what you and I require. God delights in you. Isn't that sometimes just hard to believe? We think that, well, God loves me, but that's not a real comfort because, you know, he has to love me theologically. It's kind of in his job description. He's obligated to. But he likes you, delights in you, will sing over you a song of affection. We're not given the lyrics here. Don't you wonder? What, what is it that he will say? I think the ESV even improves upon the NIV's version here because it says, he will exult over you with loud singing. The voice of God which spoke all things into existence, which calmed the storm, which scared the people to death on Mount Sinai, 
will comfort us and sing over us with love and affection. And that is sweet to hear. We got any Tolkien fans here? All right. I have to say this, as much as I've enjoyed the books, Peter Jackson improved upon one scene in his adaptation in the movie. It's at the end, the return of the king, when they're up uh, at the city of Gondor, and Aragorn is being crowned king. You know what I'm talking about? People sort of gather around, and then in the book it says that he spoke some elvish phrase. But in the movie, this quiet, bold, soothing song comes out of the king's mouth over the people. And it's a pretty good glimpse of what God does here. He will delight in you. He will sing over you. He really, really loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tension that Zephaniah introduces. And I'm really, really grateful to live on the other side of the cross so that I can see your provision. Uh, God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not yet received Christ as their Savior and received his death and sacrifice on their behalf, that they would be those who are meek and humble and choose to trust in the Lord. That they would simply say, I'm a sinner and I know it. I need to be saved from what I deserve. Jesus, may your righteousness be applied to me. Forgive me and make me your child that I would be sung over as the Lord will do for his people. God, we rejoice in these things. Help us to believe them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.